There are millions of people who are suffering. They're being ignored, they're not getting treatment, and they're suffering. We know exactly what their diagnosis is. I know exactly what it is. I know what it's caused by, and I know how to treat it, and they will not let us treat these people. The NIH knows about these people. They know what causes it, and they will not treat these people. And that has to change. There's no disease in medicine that you can't treat. It's never too late. These vaccine-injured people are suffering, and we need to do something for them. They suffer. It's a terrible disease. The medical community needs to wake up. This is a real disease. We need to change. And the legislators in this country need to be real people. This is a humanitarian crisis. I'd like to ask you guys, how much more is it going to take for other doctors to speak out? I think there had like but what Paul just said, like there has to be a recognition of vaccine injury. And and when that once that becomes a thing and it's a norm it becomes normalized, it you know, slowly to be let people talk about it. And that, that's one of the great sadnesses is that I look at the system, right? And you see all of these long haul COVID clinics at the all these academic medical centers. Um I hate to denigrate them, but I can't help it. But I mean, they're absolutely worth, worthless. I mean, they just test and refer and counsel and they don't treat. But there are no vaccine injury clinics. And we, we know there's an epidemic of vaccine injuries. I mean, these, these are the most toxic medical in interventions known to man. And, and going into COVID, I didn't know how dangerous vaccines were. I never really paid attention to them. I accepted it as an implicit good. Um, and then now that I've looked, thought and looked critically at the data, I understand that these vaccines that we use have been dangerous for a long time. I don't know how to make it okay or, or when the doctor is going to speak up, but I, I do know that with this particular intervention, this humanitarian catastrophe, this incredible overreach and the amount of death and destruction in its wake, that I think society is going to change around this. I mean, we cannot ignore it forever. And, and that, that, those are my hopes, is that if we keep talking, keep paying attention, um, and uh, as long as they keep vaccinating, I mean, this thing is not going to stop. And uh, hopefully we're going to see change come around it and we can, we can normalize this and stop doing really bad things to people. My last point is, you know, Pierre and I, we put the FLCC together because in March of 220, the NIH said there's no treatment for COVID. Patients were dying in New York. If you're on a ventilator, you had an 80% chance of dying. The NIH, the CDC, the WHO all said, sorry guys, just there's no treatment, which was outrageous. How can you do that? Even if as a doctor, you got to do something. So that's why we put the FLCC together. And now we're doing the same. <laughs> The same thing for the vaccine injured, because nobody wants to treat them. So you know what? We will treat them. Folks, if you haven't already figured it out, our Dr. Paul Marek is filled with compassion for patients. 
And so is Pierre Corey. And so are the rest of our team of clinicians and nurses who've donated hours upon hours of time uh, over and above and beyond what they were already putting into their doctor's offices, their hospitals, suiting up in ICUs in the very beginning and going into save patients' lives and from the very beginning of the pandemic. You know, they understand this disease and how different patients respond differently to the disease. And uh, this is why we don't do a one-size-fits-all treatment for everybody. They vary the protocols to each and every patient. That is called good doctoring. And, you know, I'm delighted to say that the good doctors are here with us tonight. They were in Ohio last week, as you just saw, but they're here to discuss their latest work in helping patients who overcome the serious adverse events uh, that are happening with some of the COVID vaccines with treating long haul COVID symptoms and, uh, you know, just doing all the good that they do. Welcome. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of the Alliance. And, uh, you know, this group is, we're simply trying to spread the word of all of the good that they are doing, the doctors are doing in order to help save lives. And um, we want to get information out that doctors and nurses everywhere can use. And speaking of nurses, three of our top volunteer nurses are working behind the scenes already, taking the questions that you put into text and answering them. But Paul and Pierre promise that they're going to answer a lot of your questions tonight as well after they update you on what's going on with their treatment for the adverse events and for long haul, how they're updating the protocols and what's the latest with Paxlovid and well, a lot more, even a question uh, we've had about kids and hepatitis. So lots to learn, lots going on. Pierre and Paul, are you ready? I'm here. Great. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure if Pierre's here. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hi, Pierre. Are you with us or not? It's a, such a pleasure to see you, Paul. It's been yeah. a long time. Likewise, Pierre. I like the haircut. What echo? Haircut. Oh, haircut. It's like a week ago. Yeah, well, whatever. Well, thank you for the thank you for the compliment. I, I'm getting a little red in the face. I'm blushing. Yeah. It's sweet. It should be. All right, what do you want to talk about, Paul? Yeah, you, you, you. I mean, you, you can talk about it. So I, I suppose you know what you know. Um, we should tell the folks out there that you know what we've been working on furiously is a an approach or a protocol to the vaccine injured, and um, you know, much like our other protocols, we've been collaborating with clinicians across the country and across the world. We're getting. Uh, ideas from them. Because basically, as I said, in Ohio, um, these people are, are abandoned. Um, it's a disease which the medical community doesn't recognize. The vaccine companies don't recognize. The government doesn't recognize. And these people suffer. They suffer enormously physically, mentally, emotionally, economically, and they've been abandoned. And um, so, you know, what we're going to do is put a protocol together to try and help these people. But, you know, I think it goes really beyond much further than that is that, you know, 
the the vaccines have generated billions of dollars, and at least you would imagine a small percentage of the enormous revenue that's been generated would be spent trying to research the injuries that these vaccines have caused. It's just, it's just that's well, the right thing to do. And so, you know, they're being ignored. The medical community is ignoring it. Our, our government, I think, and the agencies have a duty to actually, you know, spend resources to try and understand this disease. Paul, and- you mentioned that in your speech that it was on that video. I mean, we know the NIH is getting vaccine injured and they've tried a few treatments. I mean, you don't hear about it. You know about it, right? I mean, they're, they're, they know it's out there because they've tried to treat these patients. Correct? That's correct. We know from people that have actually been to the NIH, they have been treated. So at one time they were treating them, but then they hushed, hushed it and stopped it because they didn't want to admit that there actually was a problem. Yeah. So the NIH does know about it. They have a pretty good idea what's causing it, but you know, they don't seem to be interested in in the, it's a it's a major humanitarian yeah. crisis. You, you know, and, you know what this makes me think of, Paul. Like we've one of the things we've talked about right throughout this pandemic is that we're dealing with total regulatory capture. Right, there is an incentive to not recognize these injuries, not publicize them, to try to ignore them. But just what we've been seeing lately with state legislation, I mean, and I don't know, states don't have research budgets, but it would be great if some director of a department of health somewhere put together a program to, to research or treat or do a trial. I mean, or philanthropy, you know, you know, this, this is a space for philanthropy. You know, they showed up with early treatment trials. This is not going to require the agencies aren't going to do it. But what, what about philanthropy? Yeah, no, I, but yes. But you know, the, the government for the people of the people should be here for the people. Yeah. Uh, these vaccines, it's these vaccines of which they have made gazillion dollars have caused these injuries. They have a responsibility to figure it out. So, you know, I saw, you know, one of the companies was making some kind of baby carriage. The baby carriage killed one child died, one child. And the carriage, the rocker was withdrawn from the market, one child. Look how many people have died from the vaccines and they're turning a blind eye. It just, it, it it's unconscionable. I mean, as I don't know how humanity can turn a blind eye to this. We should be demanding of the federal government that they invest resources in studying this issue. And, and, and so, Paul, it's, I mean, we totally agree. And it's a sad, you know, everything you're saying is so last century, but um, I get it. We want a good government that does these kind of things. But um, the, the reality is what you also talked about, right, which is we're working on this protocol. And, and just for those who are listening, right, the protocol is, is, is fundamentally different. It's, it's actually a little bit more nuanced. It has a few more lines of therapy, and then it has kind of attention to focal defined complications and pathologies that we know are occurring. Whereas, you know, the old I recover protocol was kind of like a general approach where we now have, you know, specific areas to focus on in, in hopefully different patients. I, I think it's going to be a great guide for doctors who are willing uh, to try to help these patients and treat them. But um, 
you know, the other aspect of this is, is I'm just playing off of what you're just saying is that, Paul, we're left with building a protocol where we don't have published therapeutic trials data. There's no trials. The only trials on is on long haul, and it's just the descriptors of the constellation of symptoms. There's no therapeutic trials in long haul, and there's not yet, and I think there will be, uh, but certainly not in vaccine injured. And so we've had to hold meetings with clinicians who are seeing these, and these are all like-minded clinicians, open-minded, listen to their patients, know that they're injured, know that it was temporarily associated with the vaccine, and are being very thoughtful in looking at the different pathologies. And we're working with gastroenterologists and neurologists and general practitioners and and chronic disease doctors who've seen things like uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Lyme, which has, you know, there's a lot of overlap with them. And so we're, we're left with building a protocol over some pathophysiology papers of mechanisms, uh, some of them hypothetical, right? Um, there's some autopsy or pathologic data. Uh, and then a lot of it is just, I don't know if gumshoe is the right word, but, you know, clinicians out there trying to treat, finding out stuff that works, doesn't work and doing what they think makes sense. And I, and I actually think it's going to be a good protocol, but it's, you know, it's not one that we've traditionally built where we got to rely on another piece of good clinical trials data. Yeah. I mean, it's going back to what medicine used to be. Doctors doctors did things at the bedside. They made clinical observations and based on those clinical observations, they treated their patients and shared that information. So, you know, the ivory tower will not like this because they're going to ask for an RCT. And obviously, <laughs> and obviously, you know, they completely screwed in the head because that just can never happen. But, you know, we're going to get back to doctors being doctors, healthcare providers being healthcare providers is that yeah. we here to provide help to these people. You do something, you see what works and what doesn't work, and you share that information with your colleagues. Totally. That's, that's the fundamentals of medicine. Unfortunately, it's been completely perverted. So, you know, I, I wrote the book on evidence-based medicine, and, I, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it because, you know, it's based on the so-called randomized controlled trial. So randomized controlled trials have their place, but you know what, you know, it's, it's a small place. It's not the, it's the totality of evidence you've got to look for. And, you know, you can't have a randomized controlled trial on every single intervention. It's just an impossibility. Well, that, that's what I wanted to, to jump on with that you just said is that the other thing is that, you know, the other criticism, my other favorite criticism, right, is that, um, yeah, there's no trials. The other criticism that I hear is that we use these combination therapy protocols and that we're just trying anything and throwing it against the wall as if we're doing this willy-nilly without thought. When the reality is, just like you said, Paul, this disease is so complex, there's probably at least five or six pathophysiologic mechanisms in post-vaccine and long haul, and it absolutely mandates a, a thoughtful combination therapy. There's not going to be one drug that's going to cure everyone. And, and, and to pretend otherwise, like they do in these complexes, like in COVID even, they pretend that one drug is going to do it. And even though we're all very well known for identifying and using ivermectin as a centerpiece of our protocol, it's never the only thing. We always use other things. And so, you know, I, I don't, I think, Paul, you and I are beyond the criticisms now. I mean, we, we just, we're just going to keep doing what we do. And, and, um, and, and you know what? We know we help people. And we're going to continue to do that the best we can um, without their help. 
because they're not helping. Like you said, they're not helping. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we filling this void because we have to, and nobody else will. And, you know, it, it's going to evolve with time based on the feedback. Cause we really very sensitive to the feedback of our colleagues and we listen to what they have to say. And, you know, there's no magic bullet. And unfortunately there are people out there who are trying to sell a magic bullet. It just doesn't exist. And, you know, in a way it's like treating cancer. There's no single drug that yeah. treats cancer. Different cancers you treat with different drugs. And most of the time it's not a single drug. It's a combination of drugs. And often you can add nutraceuticals to enhance the efficacy. Sure. So it's, it's a multi-pronged approach and it has to be individualized. You know, the oncologists really have got this down to an art because they can, based on the genetics of the tumor, the genetic defect, they can specifically target, you know, specific genes. Yeah. No, no, I, I get it. I get it. So, Paul, um, so we talked about, uh, you know, our, our, the, the revision of, of the iRecover protocol and, you know, in the future, it's going to be split into uh, I recover long haul, I recover for vaccine injury, because um, there's a lot of overlap, but there are certain things that we see more often in one than the other. The other thing I think we were going to talk about tonight is um, what's going on with all these uh, kids falling out with hepatitis? You know, yes. one of the, before I ask you, because I'll let you take that, but, you know, if you look at the recent CDC bulletin on it, um, I read it the other day they've identified so far 109 cases, right? In pediatrics, apparently they're quite young, uh, two to five, although I haven't really seen the granular data on that, which is the new CDC. Um, but out of the 109, five kids have died and 14% got liver transplants. Yeah. So actually, you know, I think we understand what's happening, although they don't want to tell us what's happening. So there are two types of hepatitis. There's an autoimmune hepatitis, mainly in adults related to the vaccine, where the spike is being presented by the liver cells and the body's attacking the liver. That's, that's this autoimmune hepatitis in adults. What is most troubling is this hepatitis in children. Yep. seems to be due to adenovirus. And the thinking is, you know, that the J&J &J or AstraZeneca, whatever it is, was a defective non-replicative adenovirus that they used. What they think has happened is that these defective adenoviruses have combined genetically with other adenoviruses. So there's been a combination of genes making these replicate these these adenoviruses which have were designed not to replicate they've now acquired the genes from other adenoviruses which are now allow them to replicate so we've essentially created a monster adenovirus this is this is this is due to this is a man-made catastrophe again. You know, we're messing with nature. We've created this monster adenovirus, and it seems to be a recombinant adenovirus from the replicative defective vector vaccine together with the natural adenovirus has now created this monster. 
And this is this is what happens when you screw with nature. This I is get what it. happens. But but you know that that theoretical consequence of you using adenovirus vectors that's been described even before these that always was a, a known complication of using these vectors is that they knew it always had the capacity to recombine with other existing adenoviruses and potentially develop severe pathogenic strains and now you're seeing little children all over the world right so when I say all over the world, it's multiple countries. I think it's 20 countries. The WHO said like 300 cases. Um, and that's just the ones that we know about. And it's just happening now. I'm sure it's not related to the vaccine, Paul. I mean, it's just random event, right? Oh, sure. It's just, yeah, I, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it's a complete coincidence that, you know, <laughs> you know, tens of thousands of years, this hasn't happened. And suddenly, you know, we 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 injecting these adenovector viruses, and suddenly we have this this new virus. It's probably it's probably a coincidence. It has nothing to do. I, I I would say the CDC and FDA are going to say this has nothing to do with vaccination. It's just a coincidence. The same way as patients who get the vaccine and then suddenly become paralyzed, like two weeks later, it's just a coincidence or patients develop myocarditis or sudden cardiac death after the vaccine. It's just a coincidence. Paul, do you know anything that treats uh, RNA viruses? Do I know anything? There's a hosty wormer that, um, <laughs> you know, it's, well, it's a, But seriously, Paul, that's a sadness, right? Because we know from in vitro that ivermectin has, you know, anti-replicative efficacy in, in, in a dozen uh, RNA viruses and adenovirus is another one. And so these kids, you wonder, is there a role uh, as they fall ill for, for a good antiviral? So my friend, I, I, I just hate to correct you that adenovirus, as far as I'm saying, is a DNA virus. DNA virus. Mm. I knew you were going to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know where we disagree is that you think that ivermectin doesn't work against DNA viruses. I don't know. It works against worms. You know, that's why, <laughs> really, that's why all patients across the world, they just, it's not the COVID, it's that they suddenly are infected with worms. And the ivermectin is treating the worms, and that's why they get better. They get magically better. It's yeah, nothing. Okay. Yeah, so it's a, it's a fantastic. Paul, going back to the hepatitis. Be careful, they're gonna lift your soundbite, guys. Yeah, Come yeah, on. yeah. But but Paul, the the um, with the kids, adenovirus is not implicated in all. And some of it is this terrible cytotoxic autoimmune uh, uh, attack, isn't it? So I think that. These young kids that are having hepatitis, as far as I can understand, 80% of them have actually isolated adenovirus from the blood. So this seems... Oh, 80%? Seems, okay. Yeah, so there seems to be a very strong association. Now, obviously, they don't want to admit where it's coming from. They just won't admit it. Much like the vaccine injured, they won't admit it. But, you know, it's an adenovirus. It's in the blood. It's causing hepatitis. And so the question, why in kids? So yeah. probably the reason is, is that many adults have immunity against adenovirus, but because kids have been locked up and sheltered, they haven't been exposed to all of these adenoviruses. 
So they probably don't have, you know, natural immunity. Yep. You know, natural immunity is a thing. Apparently, it wasn't a thing. It seems like the legislature in Tennessee now actually recognizes it is a thing. So we have to believe it is a thing, although people well, don't it's think it's only a thing because they passed a law making it a thing. Yes. It didn't exist before there was a law. It didn't law. exist before. So it seems that kids, you know, don't have, because they've been protected, may not have really good natural immunity against adenovirus. So that's why they're getting it. So, I mean, Elizabeth Mumper, you know, she's a pediatrician and she knows kids need to be exposed to dirt and shit and all kinds of things. And they've got to play in the dirt because that's how they develop immunity. You can't, you can't, you can't protect kids from getting natural infections. So that appears to be why it's happening in kids. And Obviously, quite young ones. That's the thing. It seems that it's concentrated in like two to five-year-olds. So yes. it's so, like, you know, absolutely correct. Yeah. So obviously this is an evolving topic. It's very worrisome. And, you know, they won't come out and say, you know what, we think this is an adenovirus due to the vaccine, the defective vaccine, which we've been inoculating in people. But that yeah. seems to be the most plausible explanation. And, you know, as you said, you know, there, I don't know, there have been a number of deaths, there have been liver transplants, and that's probably the tip of the iceberg, because we know, you know, just because of underreporting. And so, and the, there's the potential for this virus to spread amongst kids. So it's a very worrisome thing. There's nothing that's not worrying right now. Um, yes. So, you know, I think if we had just let the kids be, let them play outside, let them play in the dirt, let them play in the horse manure, you know, that would have been really good. For let them. them be around other kids. Yes. You know, that's what, that's how you build immunity. Um, that's that's how I am like rubbing works. snot over each other, right? When yeah. you use kids, so I get it. Um, we're we're coming out with some pretty sound medical advice tonight, Paul. This is good. I like it. Um, we're building natural immunity. You want to talk about? Let's talk about Paxlovid a little bit. This this rebound thing. I mean, we don't use it. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't prescribe it to anyone. Um, but. Surprise, surprise, right? In the trial, in the trial, it's reported this rebound phenomenon occurred 2% of the intervention and 1.5% of the placebo. And so they didn't think it was very significant. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that they're talking about it in the newspapers. They're actually literally questioning the utility and efficacy of this drug. Yeah, so firstly, I mean, one has to believe the data that they publish because <laughs> their data is credible. And, you know, that up until this point, you know, the, the data has been impeccable. The pharmaceutical company's data has been absolutely spot on. So you can trust every single thing they publish. I always do, Paul. I always have. And there's never given me any reason to not. Yeah, so obviously that's complete horse manure. And so what we're seeing is the reality. This is a drug which the White House, in fact, the White House was, they were acting as, as drug representatives for Pfizer. They bought up millions of doses. They were actually promoting the use of this drug. Um, they were in, acting in as- the union address. They were acting as pharmaceutical reps. So 
You know, it's interesting because pharmaceutical reps have been kind of denied access to hospitals just because <laughs> of the um, ethics involved. But it seems now that they've taken the White House has now become the new pharmaceutical representatives and they were pushing this drug. And I think it's now backfired because, I mean, we know in vitro data show that ivermectin is a much more potent protease inhibitor than the stupid Paxlovid. And Paxlovid well, has all of these very well, serious- well, Hold on, I just wanna say, you just said that. And so the in vitro data is playing out. Paul, we've been treating, I've been treating hundreds of patients over the last 15, 16 months with ivermectin. I've never had a rebound. I mean, I also don't necessarily stop at five days. I mean, we treat until recovered, you know, five, seven days or until recovered. Most people recover within that time frame, but you know, it's definitely weaker because the weird thing when I read about these reports is that they, they finish the five days, they feel better. But then I've heard of reports where two or three days later, they fall ill with fevers again and, or they test positive again after being negative. And so it's, it's, it's a, I don't know what they're doing with this. So basically Paxlovid has failed because it's an yeah. ineffective drug. It's much less effective than ivermectin against SARS-CoV-2. So what happens is it seems like it suppresses viral replication. The patients get better and then you stop the drug and then they rebound. So if you actually do PCR or you do antigenic testing, the, the, the viral counts go down. And then like day nine, day 10, once, you know, after you've stopped it, it rebounds again because it's an ineffective drug in controlling this virus. I mean, they've just proven what we knew. It's a, it's a, it's a far inferior drug to treat SARS-CoV-2 than ivermectin or the other drugs. But you they're know, still, still going to push it because, you know what, it's a lot of money. You know, we were talking the other day because I was just mystified you know, I'm going away from the science back to the, uh, the society here, but I, I was somewhat stumped as to why mass media was actually openly talking about the limitations of this drug and that there's problems with it. Um, because what I've seen and experienced is really nothing but censorship and propaganda to protect the pharmaceutical company's interests. And, you know, one of the people we were talking with on our team suggested, well, maybe this is because they're worried about the vaccines, that if some, if people think they have Paxlovid, this, this is all about protecting vaccines or something, because it is odd that they're openly talking about a limitations of, of a new drug that they stand to make billions off of. Yeah, I mean, it is truly astonishing that you're right, there's been so much censorship and misinformation and lies, that for once, it seems like they're telling the truth. And maybe it's a way to protect the vaccines because they say, well, maybe this is not working, but you know what? You still need to be vaccinated. So there's two hypotheses, right? So I love that you said that for once they're telling the truth. So my hypothesis is that suddenly they've had some sort of ethical rebirth and moral rebirth, and they've decided they're going to be truth tellers. No, that's, that's impossible. <laughs> no, no, Pierre, that's a dream. That's a dream. Sorry. There must be a reason. <laughs> That's the There's thing. There's a reason. There's some other reason why they're doing that. So anyway, you want to do questions, Paul? We've got yeah, a lot of good good. ones. And fellas, the first one, uh, Brian Emerson wants to know, could you list the post-vaccine ailments that you're seeing? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. And so I'll take that because I have been speaking a lot to the vaccine injured patients. And I, I haven't treated anyone. So I think you should take that question. Yeah, Pierre actually has never treated a COVID patient. So, <laughs> so, you know, although there's an overlap between long COVID and vaccine injured, there are very distinct syndromes which separate them. And it seems like the vaccine injured suffer many of them suffer severe neurological injuries, severe neurological injuries. And unlike long cholera or long COVID, which tends to get better with time, these people can be kind of stable and then they can suddenly a year, 14 months down, have an acute relapse. So it's ongoing. So they have severe neurological issues. And one of them is this syndrome, which is really, it's called a, a small fiber neuropathy. So they have severe pain, they have shooting pains, they have paresthesias, they have tingling in their feet, they have severe pain. And this seems to be a characteristic feature more, I mean, we've seen it after COVID, but it seems to be particularly common after the vaccine. And in, the, in addition, they have an autonomic neuropathy which can be together or separate from this peripheral neuropathy. And they have what's called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So it's an autonomic dysfunction. Their heart races, they have lightheadedness. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a cardiac thing. So th that seems to be a very specific feature of a post-vaccine. And then obviously there's the um, brain fog, the fatigue, the tiredness, the post-exertional tiredness, uh, which is common to, to post-COVID. The other thing which is somewhat interesting and I it requires further understanding is somehow the vaccine precipitates a severe allergic diathesis so people who didn't have allergies before, suddenly their IgE levels, their isnafils are high, and they suddenly become allergic to a whole bunch of stuff, foods and stuff, which is a very odd thing. So somehow the, vac the vaccine is reprogramming their T cells towards a allergenic phenotype and they're making IgE. It's a truly astonishing thing. So I think the thing which distinguishes long COVID from the vaccine injured predominantly is this severe neurological issues. Um, the other one obviously is myocarditis. So um, the myocarditis is a serious issue uh, and really comes in two flavors. There's the acute myocarditis, you know, 24, 48 hours after vaccination and associated with sudden death. And we know that, that professional athletes are suddenly dropping on the field. Um, there, there are hundreds of athletes, particularly soccer players. These are young, healthy people who drop dead or at a cardiac arrest on the field. Um, they don't want to associate it with the vaccine. They don't even want to talk about it. Um, the current theory is it's the referee's whistle. So the referees are blowing so hard and they whistle. <laughs> Paul, that, that apparently was a spoof, but we enjoyed that spoof. That was really funny because based on the stuff that I read in the papers, I totally would believe that that, that article. But, um, but you know, what you just said was, you know, you, you, it's totally true. There, we're seeing more neuropathic stuff on the vaccine side 
the, the commonalities are these fatigue and poor concentration and sort of cognitive dysfunction syndromes, especially that, you know, the post-exertional malaise, um, these, and, then, and that's just of the many sadnesses, right? You have all of these patients, so many of them were previously healthy. Like a lot of patients in my practice, previously healthy. And now they can't even go to the store to buy milk. Like just that exertion alone sets them back. Like they, they have to be so measured about, uh, you know, the activities they can tolerate the exertion. Um, but, you know, the other thing about the, the myocarditis, Paul, and these cardiac arrests is, you know, it's, it's a good time to bring up Flavio's work. I, I agree with you. That paper, when you just even read the abstract, and I mean, he, he really puts the pieces to the puzzle and, and the evidence is all out there and he strings it together well, which is this catecholamine surge from the adrenals. And now we have autopsy data showing that it's a stress cardiomyopathy. And that's why these high aerobic exercising athletes, and, and by the way, Paul, as of a month ago, I, I'm not really keeping track the list, there are people who keep lists. It's 900 professional athletes who have collapsed on the field. 900. Incredible. And, and you know, people ignore it or say it's a coincidence. How is it all possible? I mean, it's obviously clear what the association is, is that they won't let you participate in sports unless you're vaccinated. And here you have these young, healthy males. We know it's young, healthy males who drop dead after the vaccine. And we understand it. Flavio's article actually was 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 a pivotal article explaining what happens. They but, get- by the way, Paul, do you know that um, again? I feel like we're beating a dead horse all the time because it's just so tiresome. But I talked to Flavio last night. Guess how many journals he's up to now that he's gotten rejected from? <laughs> he's up to four, and he didn't even go top line. He didn't even go first tier, even though it's a phenomenal paper. Even the second-tier journals are just, they're not comfortable. They, they're not taking this paper. Yes, I mean, this is what we were talking about, is that that the medical community will not accept that there's something called a vaccine injury. So how can you study it? How can you treat? How can you help these people if the medical community are not accepting a disease which clearly exists? I mean, his paper is a really phenomenal paper. Yeah, it, it, and it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's scientific, it's objective, it's, it's a very good paper, and that data needs to be out there. So, you know, we're not going to solve this problem unless we recognize it. I mean, as you know, you, you first thing is you have to recognize there's a problem before you solve it. If we're not recognizing it and we're not studying it, you know, you, we're you, in big trouble. You know, here, I don't want to get too off topic, but this is similar with the topic is that, you know, the reason why they're not publishing it, right, is because they are protecting and they want to preserve or they want to fight against vaccine hesitancy. And, and so one of the thoughts I had on this is that when are they going to give up the go? Like, when are they going to give up? Like, vaccine hesitancy is happening everywhere now. People are not, the, the amount of people who showed up for their first one, there was a drop-off for the second one. There's a massive drop-off for the third. Like, they have to know that the game's over. Like, they're not going to be selling fourth and fifth boosters. They can try, but at some point, the system has to realize no one's going to take these vaccines endlessly for a highly mutagenic cold virus, and and we we got to talk about the medicine again. And so... I think it has to do with the advertising. You know, if you can get Americans to buy pet rocks, you know, a rock. (laughs) 
You can convince I'm Paul, them. I bought a pet rock when I was 12. Sorry. You know what? You can convince them of anything. I mean, you know, how, how stupid can you be? These people are dropping dead. They're suffering and they're still continuing to sell their pet rock. <laughs> I, I don't know. Fellas, we have a lot of good questions okay, here. Sorry. I want to get more ahead, in. Go ahead. Okay. First of all, you know, you, you mentioned long COVID and Karen Harsh wants to know what are the criteria you use to diagnose long COVID in a patient? Yeah. So the sh- I'll, I'll try to give a brief and targeted answer. Um, so long haul and post-vaccine syndromes, it's really a constellation. Certainly vaccine injured sometimes can have one single thing wrong with them, but the ones that I see in my practice, it's a constellation of symptoms. And, and that's why it's kind of in my last answer, which is, you know, the things that I see the most, it's generally fatigue is so common. Um, fatigue, post-exertional malaise, cognitive difficulties, autonomic, like if no one knows what autonomic means, it's that part of the nervous system that controls automatic function. So like, you controls your heart rate and modulates your heart rate and blood pressure. And so we see patients with racing heart rates or heart rates that go way higher than the exercise. Can I, can I just intervene, Pierre? So I wasn't done. I, I, well, I'm going to interfere. So basically the definition is somebody who has COVID, your symptoms should disappear within two or three weeks. So the definition really of post-COVID is someone who has ongoing symptoms after four weeks of having COVID. Well, that's what that's what there's a caveat to that is that many of the long haulers, they actually do enjoy a period of relative wellness. That's a very odd thing. They do. They do recover from COVID. So so the acute symptoms of COVID, of which fatigue is a massive one that generally tends to improve. But the long haulers, they'll say I was doing well. I went back to work. And then suddenly some weeks later, they kind of crash and these symptoms crop up. And, and I, I, it's, it's fair that Paul said, yes, post-vaccine, post-COVID, it's in relation to the, t- it's temporarily associated. Usually it's weeks afterward with, and with many, there is a period of recovery, but then there's a constellation of symptoms that they develop. And then the primary ones are fatigue, post-exertional malaise, autonomic dysfunction, cognitive stuff. They just don't feel as sharp. They have difficulty concentrating, um, and, and most of what I feel for them, because I, I see it, most of my patients are somewhat, when I say disabled, they, they have severe limitations in their functional capacity. And many of them can't work anymore. And it's because any sort of exertion or activity, they can't tolerate. They feel like they have to lie down. They feel exhausted. They, call, they talk about hitting a wall. Um, and, then, and then the worst, if they do too much one day, their next two days are in bed. And by yeah, the so- way, this has been well described for years in other post-viral, post-infectious chronic fatigue syndromes. It's actually not a new syndrome. It's just an epidemic syndrome. Before they used to, you know, you had to go to see, you know, certain doctors, like the system didn't really do well with chronic fatigue or these chronic uh, syndromes. And and now it's so huge. They're still ignoring, you know, not ignoring it perfectly, but, um, you know, this has occurred before, Um, but with COVID and and the vaccines, it's, it's very severe. And, and the numbers are just huge. Um, but basically, the short answer is temporarily associated to one of those events, COVID or vaccine, and, and it's a constellation of symptoms. Yeah, what, what is particularly striking about the long COVID is they get this post-exertion fatigue, which seems to be a very specific symptom. So most doctors, you know, would tell them, you know, you know, do some exercise, do graded exercise. 
So it seems that what happens is when these people exercise, they have profound fatigue and dysfunction after exercising. And this points to some kind of a mitochondrial dysfunction that they have. They just can't make energy. And also it's associated with cardiac abnormalities. They cannot increase their, their cardiac output, the ability of the heart to pump. We have yep. so, so many questions from people about their experiences and what's happening to them, and they want your advice. So let, let me get to some of these here. Um, Amy Jo, in a word, says, uh, an acquaintance, a 48-year-old woman had her first Moderna shot in April 2021, second shot of Moderna in May 2021. Two weeks afterwards, she was dizzy, went home to urgent care and sent home. She went back to urgent care and was sent to the hospital with asthma problems. Then in November, 2021, she had the booster shot. Then two to three weeks later, she started breaking out as if she had eczema around her eyes. Four months later now, and it still has not resolved. She looks like she has raccoon eyes. Her regular doctor and her dermatologist have not been able to resolve this. Also, she got shingles a couple of months ago. Any suggestions? Is there a way to get doctors to investigate if it might be from the vaccines? Well, of course it's from the vaccine. We, we um, just talked about this. Yeah, of course yeah. it's from the vaccine. And this is the problem is doctors don't want to ask the question, did you get the vaccine? When did you get the vaccine? Because they don't want to make the association because then they're admitting something they don't want to admit. So okay. basically any patient who go, to presents to a doctor nowadays, you have to ask, when were you vaccinated? When did your symptoms start in relationship to the vaccine? So unfortunately, what this patient is describing is, is somewhat typical of post-vaccination syndrome. So it seems like she probably has a severe allergic diathesis, which has been precipitated by the vaccine. The vaccine causes severe immune dysfunction. And then we get reactivation of dormant viruses, herpes, CMV, EBV, mycoplasma. So this is all in keeping with post-vaccination syndrome. And so, we will be addressing how to manage these symptoms okay. in our protocol. So well, maybe it's too early for Lee Shank. And he says, if a vaccinated patient reports symptoms similar to IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, can you advise what the patient should do? So we know that people who have underlying chronic inflammation, patients with autoimmune disease, people with Lyme, are at a much higher risk of developing adverse events to the vaccine. So those people should avoid it like the plague. The other thing which is really interesting is that if a family member, a first-degree family member, had an adverse event to the vaccine, there's a high likelihood that another member will. So I think that there's certain things that you know, who cares about what they tell you to do? But if you have underlying autoimmune disease, if you have chronic inflammation, if someone else in your family has had an adverse event, you don't want to get the, these vaccines. Wow. Elizabeth Boulder says, do you have any information on the possibility of hepatitis coming from breastfeeding by vaccinated mothers? Is there any truth to that? Well, that's where we need to know more. I think that's totally a hypothesis that's reasonable to explore why these young children. I mean, we talked about some of the reasons, right? The new adenoviruses, poor natural immunity, um, but the, the role of the vaccines and even 
God forbid, shedding or breast milk um, um, exposures to, to in vaccinated moms, it's all on the table. I, we, we just don't have the data. I mean, all, all we know is what what they're telling us about this. But but I think it's 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 something that I would want to ask just openly and honestly, like, could this be I, I'd be really interested to know what those patterns are. How many of these kids were being breastfed? Um how many of these kids had vaccinated mothers? I, these are easy questions to kind of figure out with the data, but no one's sharing that kind of granular data. Well, there's a real problem with people finding out. And here, here's a, another question from uh, Kathleen York. She says, my son-in-law was diagnosed a year and a half ago with an aortic root problem, possibly congenital. He had an echo which showed an ejection fraction of 65 to 70%. He was vaccinated and several weeks later got COVID but was not hospitalized. He's a tall, slender, generally fit 54-year-old. He recently had another echo, which read 40 to 45% ejection fraction. He has tiredness, and when he dashes up the stairs, he becomes briefly short of breath. Repeat echo several weeks later showed the same 40 to 45% ejection fraction. Is this cardiomyopathy from COVID? Vaccine? Both? I don't know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the problem is it's sometimes difficult to separate what's from post-COVID, what's from the vaccine. They both have spike. So spike is probably the most toxic thing ever invented. And so it seems like he probably has cardiac inflammation related to the spike. Whether the spike came naturally or through the vaccine is difficult to know. But the, the temporal association would suggest that he's suffering from a myocardial injury. Um, here's, you know. here's, here's another similar kind of a case. Um, Catherine Metzger says, I was just released from the hospital with three small acute strokes, according to my doctors. I had clots in my brain. I have had long COVID, including severe fatigue, rapid hair loss, and more. The ER doctors and the hospitalists made no connection between my symptoms and long COVID. I could use some guidance here, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, so this, the clotting issue is a big issue. You know, Pierre's such a big clot. Let him maybe address how you deal with the clotting in post-COVID. So, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. So we know that both the vaccine and long COVID activates the clotting cascade and pay, people have multiple small and big clots. How to actually treat it is, is somewhat challenging. What are your thoughts, Pierre? Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest thing to answer is obviously, as we call it, the big clots or macro clotting, which are commonly termed, you know, uh, deep venous thrombosis, because you'll see them in the large veins of the body. I mean, th those have been well studied. There are complications of a lot of things, and and the treatment for that is some chronic anticoagulation. The the challenge that we're having is there are centers which are seeing what they're calling microclots, and some of these patients don't have elevated D-dimers, which is kind of a marker of clotting. But we're seeing these platelet aggregations, amyloid or fibrin, uh, like organized fibrin clots, and they're they're tiny and they're not forming macro clots. And, and whether those micro clots are the consequence of underlying inflammation or they're a pathology in and of themselves, or even a third option, which is they might be a nidus for more inflammation. 
So the role of anticoagulating in these patients with microclots and the best way to diagnose them, it's actually hard. The centers that are doing it, they're using something called dark field microscopy. There's very few experts that really know how to do that. Um, and so it, it's not an easy problem to manage, but I mean, there are centers that have talked about very good outcomes with a month of triple therapy anticoagulation and the patients stay well afterwards. So, so I do think that the clotting thing and in, in, especially in the vaccine injured, it, it, we, I wish I knew more of what to do. I, I, I'm starting to anticoagulate some people. I've had others who've been on everything and the only thing that helped them was a blood thinner. And so, uh, again, I, 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 you know, do you know anything? So, you know, papiasis is true, surprisingly. So I think it's related to inflammation, which may be triggering the clotting. Hold on, let me just finish, Paul. Oh. <laughs> finish one. We've lost your signal. You're freezing. You're, you've frozen. Pierre has frozen. We have a frozen. Oh, okay. yeah. Good. <laughs> um, am I alive now? Yes, you're back. No, you're frozen. So my internet connection is unstable. Um, all right, you go ahead, Paul. So Pierre can maybe unfreeze himself. Maybe it's in, you know, he's close to the North Pole. Maybe that's his problem. Um, so, you know, the clotting is complicated. I think you have inflammation, which triggers clotting. You have endothelial damage, which, which triggers clotting. And spike protein itself triggers clotting. So it's, it's a difficult issue. You know, what... what some people are recommending is triple anticoagulation with aspirin, Plavix, and a NOAC. And there's a, there's a group in South Africa that seems to have pretty good success with this. So one has to be a little bit cautious because if you give somebody a drug which prevents them clotting, they have a tendency to bleed. So that's the downside. So I think there is a role of triple anticoagulation I think the patients need to be selected carefully and we're not sure how to select them. And then they have to be followed very closely. And I think this is, this is an emerging area, but certainly, you know, if people have evidence of clotting, they need to be at least on aspirin, probably on Eloquist as well. And if they really have uncontrolled clotting, um, you know, on, on a second antiplatelet. But, you know, th this is an ongoing area. Would you agree, Pierre? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're also using the, you know, those enzymatics like worm fibrinolytics, uh, lumbrokinase, natokinase. And some people have responded to those. Um, and I, they're generally safer and well-tolerated. The literature on them is, is supportive. Um, but it's just going back to the central problem, like it's, it's who to do it in. And like, sometimes it works in some people, sometimes it doesn't. And it, it's, it's just hard. And that's why our protocols are about, you know, a bit of trial and error and, and they're going to evolve. We have a question about high blood pressure. Did I ask you that one yet? Because um, Cheryl Aaron says, my daughter, age 38, has taken the mRNA vaccines and one booster. She now has high blood pressure that is not responding to medications. Any thoughts on how to help her? So, well, I mean, there are, I, I'm sure some medications work that you just you probably need more. And, and we do believe that there's a role for clonidine because of its mechanisms. But 
You know, what I learned recently at, um, I, I, I went and spoke at an event and I was talking to some folks afterwards and one young man um, talked about how, and even Robert Malone talks about this, he had these spikes in blood pressure after the vaccine and he was at the hospital in the emergency room and apparently the ER doctor said, oh, you too, another, you know, having high blood pressure. These are all people without any history of blood pressure who are now suddenly having spice in blood pressure. And he said that when he was there, he was listening through the wall to a doctor talking to another patient. The patient was there for the same thing. And so like apparently patients are coming to ER with different symptoms and they're being diagnosed with new onset high blood pressure. And, you know, it's, it's either some form of autonomic dysfunction or it's what, you know, we talked about with Flavio's paper, which is these surges of catecholamines, uh, you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine, all of those things raise your blood pressure. And, and so it could just be adrenal mediated uh, from, from spike protein distribution that's interfering with adrenal function. There is another explanation, Pierre, is that you need ACE2 to break down angiotensin. And it seems like many of these people have decreased levels of ACE2 or have antibodies against ACE2. Yeah. So they, that paradoxically, post-COVID and post-vaccine, patients can develop both hypertension and hypotension. Yeah. And it seems to be directly related to the, 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 the spike. That sounds like what, it, that's a good explanation for this last case. But the, these other patients where they have these very variable blood, like they, it kind of just spikes at times. And so, I don't know. We have an interesting question here from Jeremy Cohen says, can you speak about hyperbaric oxygen therapy for a vaccine injury? The hypoxic hypertoxic paradox practiced by Dr. Shari Afrati in Israel and an anonymous physician in Melbourne, Australia, who's not permitted to, by the government to speak freely about this. Are you familiar with that one? So I turned Paul on to HBOT, so I'll let him talk about it. Yeah, so it is completely fascinating. And, you know, I poo-pooed this at the beginning. I thought this was complete BS. But actually, it's, it is, there's some very good scientific data to, to explain this. And we know from personal anecdotes that patients have been turned around dramatically with hyperbaric oxygen. And actually, it's fascinating how it works. So, you know, as a pulmonologist, you know, peer and myself, we would have thought that the way it works is the high oxygen tension in the blood increases oxygen delivery to the tissues. And that's how it works. Paradoxically, it has nothing to do with oxygen. It has to do with the pressure. It's the pressure that has this profound anti-inflammatory effect. So it decreases the pro-inflammatory mediators. It increases the anti-inflammatory mediators, increases stem cells. So hyperbaric oxygen actually is going to be on our protocol because it seems to be highly effective in some groups of patients. So yes, it, it is an alternative. It is a, an option. Obviously, it's resource limited and expensive. There is a very good scientific rationale for why it should work. And in patients who respond poorly to other modes of therapy, it's a really good alternative. We have a question that we've had before going back to ivermectin. 
JJ says, my doctor prescribed ivermectin prophylactically that I've been taken from time to time. A friend mentioned something I've never heard or read before. Can you confirm? She said anyone taking ivermectin should be getting liver function tests periodically, while no, those taking no. hydroxychloroquine don't off. need to. That's utter nonsense. So the, 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 you know what's so great about that is that uh, a year ago, or really a few months ago, um, I wouldn't have had data to show that. When you look at Flavio, you know, the, the study that he did, the, the Itajai study, right, which was 160,000 patients, six months, uh, patients were taking ivermectin, um, four doses a month. And when they looked at the labs of these patients, those that were taking ivermectin, their liver function tests improved and their kidney function improved. There was statistically significant improvements. There is no data to show that longer term use or at least six months worth are going to hurt it. And also this idea of associating ivermectin with liver injury has just never been supported. I mean, there's like two or three cases of hepatitis in the history of its use. So yeah, uh, a, I, I disagree with the worry about liver. liver yeah, it's a fantasy invented. And it by treats the, fatty liver, Paul. Yeah, it's a fantasy invented by the FDA because as Pierre said, ivermectin is used to treat fatty liver. And, you know, at, maybe at this point I should just, just mention something because somebody just texted me that actually today was a pretty uh, important day in the um, ivermectin story. The first over-the-counter order the first over-the-counter order for ivermectin took place today in Johnson City, Tennessee. Whoa! Yeah, well, great. Whoa. Oh, by the way, we have, I've got to find it. I've got so many questions here. Uh, we have a question from somebody in Florida who wants advice, and I'm, I'm trying to find it. Ah, there's too much. Oh, I, I want to go down there and... Just walk in and get just for the kick of it. I, I want to go down there, get my own ivermectin. Just uh, how fun would that be? Yeah, so I think it's going to be medical tourism to Tennessee. Isn't that going to be a thing? People Here we go. Pat Metcalf says, we are writing a bill for over-the-counter ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in Florida. Can Yay! you give me some information on how your physicians help Tennessee in and New Hampshire with their successful legislative bills. It was all Paul. Yeah, so, you know, it was a team effort. We had some really smart people on the ground helping us lobbying these people. But you know what? I think it's such an important issue that, you know, we would be happy to help them because this is the only way we're going to turn the tide is through state legislature. And, you know, obviously what happened in Tennessee and New Hampshire is truly groundbreaking and it needs to happen in more states and we would be happy to help. All right. Um, we have a couple more questions. Now it's top of the hour. How much time can you give? Do you want to yeah, do a little more? A couple more. Yeah. Pierre has to go take care of the horses, but we have a bit more time. Did you see my picture of my horse, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wasn't right. sure who was more handsome, you or the horse. <laughs> It was a very pretty horse. I'll, I'll give you that, Paul. Yeah. Well, Joyce Johnson says, my husband has had an exaggeration of his BPH with our current COVID infection. He's day 11 now and still getting a positive home test, but feels much better. Regarding BPH, 
He's never even was diagnosed with this, but it has become horrible with the COVID infection. Should he get some prednisone to stop the inflammation of his prostate? Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little, I'm stumped by that one. That's news to me. I, I, first of all, I would ask, how do you know it's BPH? Um, if it's never been diagnosed, I assume he's having urinary frequency dribbling uh, hesitancy. Um, the treatment for BPH is not steroids. I mean, it's usually an antiandrogen or, um, you know, like a urethral sphincter relaxer. You know, it would be something like dutasteride. That's more for chronic BPH or uh, tamsulosin, which is something that allows you to get urine out. But yeah, yeah I would say, you know, I, I agree know. with Pierre. I don't think there's a direct association. I would, he, he should go to his primary care doctor or a urologist to, to figure out what the problem is. And, you know, obviously, you know, when, when you have, you know, men have urinary symptoms and there is prosthetic enlargement, you have to be, you know, wary of, you know, prosthetic carcinoma. So he, he would need a PSA. And, and there's no such thing as acute BPH. No. B BPH is a chronic problem. I, it could be just like they happen at the same time. But yeah, I don't see the acute association between BPH and, and COVID. Okay. <clears throat> Here's a question um, from Dawn. She says, my friend had COVID in February and took ivermectin and got over it. She now has a sinus infection for three weeks, was tested and told she has COVID again. She's back on ivermectin now after three weeks of antibiotics alone, which offered no help at all. She's now feeling better with ivermectin. Is this a new COVID variant from B1 or B2? Yeah, so we are seeing this. Yeah, patients are having COVID and surprisingly weeks or a month or two months later, they get COVID again, and it's likely is a different variant. So yes, we are seeing this. Yeah. Here's something that you're going to like from Ted Fotakis, who says a recent study came out showing that ivermectin has some efficacy in treating some cancers. Do oh, yeah. Doctors have any opinions about this? So I, I won't say it's a deeply informed opinion because I actually, so here's the thing. I have a folder on my computer with tons of studies on it. Um, there's a really nice review paper on the use of antiparasitic drugs for tumor uh, control. And apparently not only ivermectin, but another antiparasite called fembendazole, they've been used in a lot of uh, sort of integrative oncologic practices and or um, in late stage cancers. And there are numbers of case series and reports of very extended survival. They clearly have anti-tumor activity. Um, they clearly frighten the hell out of the cancer industry. Um, but there are groups, in fact, there are Facebook groups and others where they share their stories of, of prolonged survival. Again, I hate to cite Facebook groups, but these are where patients go um, to get reasonable solutions um, to their diseases. So um, my, my dream is sometime in the next year to write a paper on the, on the use of antiparasite drugs in, in cancer and, and really review the uh, literature on ivermectin. I just haven't had time. Yeah. So because I think only one uh, pandemic at a time. So, you know, I think anyone who's considering should discuss it with an oncologist and should find an integrative oncologist. 
you know, because I don't think what you don't want to do is take ivermectin and stop other therapy. It, it should be used as adjunctive therapy. So you need to speak to, you and, know. And, and that's, that's really important. Like what I would promote or not, I hate to use the word promote, but what, what I think is, I think it's a great adjunct. Like I'm not saying, you know, don't take standard, you know, proven, quote unquote, proven therapies, um, but you can do the two together. I mean, these things are so safe. Very interesting. Well, we'll make this one the last one. Melissa McCoy comes in and you're going to like this one. She says, I have long haul COVID. I'm not vaccinated. And it's been nine months since my diagnosis. Everything that Dr. Corey just said is so true. I can't work. I have scarring in my lungs, body rash, brain fog, and fatigue. I can't even explain my GI tract is completely changed and I've developed severe allergies and asthma. The list goes on. I am still experiencing all of this. I'm trying so hard to find help, but nobody around, around me understands. It's a very, very lonely place. Well, you said it. I mean, what do you say? There, there are doctors who treat. Um, there are doctors who treat. Um, I think with our protocol, hopefully it'll help those doctors even more. Um, I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, yeah I so, think, I, so I think, you know, long COVID vaccine injured are treatable diseases. So, you know, I think... Although the medical community want to ignore the, the they're treatable um, and we need to treat them, the treatment can be difficult. It's times it's not perfect, but patients can get some relief and I think they need to be treated. Um, and the patient needs to find someone who will treat her. And obviously, you know, we have the iRecover protocol, which is available on our website specifically for long COVID. And hopefully, you know, she should have a look at it and find a, a, a practitioner who can help her because obviously she needs to be treated. And it sounds like she's having many of the allergic manifestations, which is a very interesting thing. And so she, obviously there's certain, you know, mass cell stabilizers that she could use to, 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 to deal with her, her allergies. How close are you to having that protocol done? Well, the 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 long COVID is already available. So the um, the I recover for for long COVID is on the web. We we do need to update it, you know, because of some you know emerging data in terms of post vax and, and there is an overlap. I would say within two weeks, hopefully, we'll have something available. Great. Well, and we'll try to get it out and we'll try to get it out so that doctors will hopefully want to help a patient like that. And you say there are doctors who will treat and that's good news. That is so, you know, talking about mast cell stabilizers, I saw someone ask a question. What I discovered uh, this week, so you, you can never stop learning, actually, you know, that's the, the amazing thing about medicine and science. So curcumin or turmeric, the herb actually has potent mast cell stabilizing properties. It also has 
H1 and H2 receptor blocking histamine receptors. So people who have allergies, you know, they should, uh, it's a very simple thing to try and see, see if they get any benefit. And then obviously there are H1 blockers, H2 blockers, and, you know, chromalin, which is a, a mast cell stabilizer. So, you know, there are, there are things people can, can try. Good to know. Thank you very much. Giving hope to people who hurt. And uh, thank you so much, Docs. You're, uh, you're excellent at doing it. So we just have a few announcements to make. Um, first of all, not only thanking the doctors, but you know, we have nurses. Uh, we wanna thank the nurses who were behind the scenes. Can we bring up uh, our superstar, Christina, Christina Morris, our CRNA. And Mary Beth Charno, an RN and an NP, has been back there. They've been answering questions behind the, uh, the scenes. And Scott Rogers, we have a new RN with us tonight. How many, how many did you do, Christina? How many did you have tonight? We answered half. We had like 200 questions. And you, you answered half of the 200? Is that it? Or? No, we all did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know how many I answered. Maybe, maybe 50, maybe 30. I don't know. All right. Well, every bit is a help, but we had a lot of questions from people who, who are suffering from this stuff. Did you get more of that behind the scenes? The yeah. same thing? Wow. Yeah. A lot of wow. long haul, a lot of Vax injury. Also um, questions about Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. Um, about, um, the- what did you say about Molnupiravir? Well, Pierre, I shared our infographic and uh, discussed how it was a mutagenic drug by um, research and that it has lots of drug interactions. And that it does not work. It so, also does not work. And actually, no, that a correction, correction. Out of all the countries in that multi-country trial, there's only one country where it was shown to work. And that was in Brazil. And it had nothing to do with the gamma variant. It's because the CROs, which are contract research organizations that carry out trials for pharmaceutical companies, are notoriously corrupt in Brazil. So somehow they made it, they got it to, to be effective in one country. All the other countries have failed. That's a joke medicine. Well, it's being prescribed to patients in the United States still. Yeah. And so some, someday, Christine, I'll tell you how I really feel. Well, I already <laughs> know how you feel, Pierre. <laughs> Okay, folks, speaking of uh, learning about medicine, we have Dr. Bean. I think we, uh, we should remind you folks at home. Uh, can we have a slide up there for Dr. Bean? Yeah, long story short with Dr. Bean. And you definitely want to check this out. Dr. Bean covers all sorts of interesting topics related to long COVID largely. This week... I don't know what Wait, we're hearing. What was now. that about? What was that music? I don't know what was going on. Is that on? Dr. Bean's like, um, <laughs> like theme music? I heard something about testicles. I controlled at that. I have no idea. But at any rate, this week, Dr. Bean is talking about polyethylene glycol in vaccines Ooh. and how it may be causing allergic reactions. So if you want to follow up with what we've uh, just been talking about, you can get more from Dr. Bean, flccc.net slash forward slash Dr. Bean. Now then, next week, you've got to be with us next week, folks. We are turning our attention to our neighbors to the north. 
We know there are a lot of you Canadians who have been with us all along, and you're out there wondering what um, is going on up there. You like that slide? Well, <clears throat> next week, we're going to be talking to some of your countrymen and women. We'll have a moving story. Actually, it's an unforgettable story uh, from a mother and a daughter about their experience with early treatment. And we'll talk about the persecution of their doctor that saved the mother's life and other doctors in Canada. And finally, we'll look at what resources are available for Canadians seeking early treatment. So it's going to be a very valuable discussion. Who's, who's, and whether or not you're in Canada or elsewhere, I think you'll learn a lot. Betsy, who's the yeah. genius who came up with this title? It's, it, it looks like it's me. <laughs> It looks like I came up with the title, but I didn't. It's a brilliant title. I love it. It certainly is. It <laughs> certainly is. <laughs> We've got a sassy team. You know that. <laughs> anyway. Um, and then, okay. So we talked about the protocols. We can mention again, we're splitting the iMask Plus protocol into I prevent, focused on the chronic and post-exposure protection and I care, focused on early treatment. The medical direction, don't panic. If we're not changing the, all the meds and throwing them out, don't, that's not it. This is just to simplify it, make it easier for everybody to understand. Um, and soon we'll be rolling out the new protocol, of course, on post-vaccination syndrome as well, which you just heard the doctors talk, talk all about. So there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. And that brings us to my last comment here. Whoop, let me go, it fell on the floor. The slide that says, yeah, it takes a lot of time and effort to do what we're doing. And there's no question about that. So focusing on the post-vaccination syndrome is particularly challenging. We can't do this. The doctors can't do what they're doing. We can't pull this all together and make it simplified so that people can understand it and get the message out there without your help. It's critical to spread the word and to try to save lives and suffering. And, and um, we count on you. And we thank you, those of you who've been donating, whether it's large or small amounts. And remember, we also have some very cute things that you might like. Uh, highly recommend checking out our store. Yay. Nice hat. I love, love the hat. hat. Love the hat. Yeah. All okay. people want to wear bucket hats. Go bucket hats Absolutely. are the rage cool. for the summer. Everyone get one. Everyone. And I will never wear a bucket hat. Whatever. Oh, I have a picture of you in the bucket hat, Pierre. Liar. <laughs> I'm going to put it well, anyway, to everybody. Christina is the person who figures out all of this good stuff that goes into the store. So it's really a cool place. Christine is cool. The store is cool. You'll find fun stuff there. So anyway, um, until you get over your shopping, have a great week. We will see you here next week, uh, Wednesday evening with the Canadian story that uh, you won't want to miss, as I said, where no matter where you live. So we thank you. Have a great week. See you guys. <laughs>